Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Vinesh Maid and we return to our archive series by focusing on the jazz at Lincoln Centre Orchestra. Yeah, you've got you've got people that have worked on their sounds all their life. The, the most moving thing with with the orchestra can be how quiet you're playing with this full beautiful sound. So we consider playing Benny Goodman's music. Jess's modern is playing some of our own original arrangements that we've written for any concert. In the fourth year of their international associate residency in February 2016, under their leader, Wynton Marsalis, they performed the music of Wayne Shorter, Gershwin, and hosted an evening celebrating the next generation of jazz. This gave us an excuse at the time to learn more about the story of how a young trombonist from Norwich ended up in New York's greatest jazz ensemble. Back in 2016, I hooked up in the States with Elliot Mason. I actually remember the first time that I improvised um, and it, almost like it was yesterday. It's very clear memory. Um, and my, my dad was just playing an Abersol on the, the tune soon. I was trying just to play the melody with him and then we kind of stopped and then he played by himself. And he was just explaining to me, just, you know, just play what, just play what you hear right now. And I was like looking at the notes and looking at the chords and it all wasn't making much sense to me, but just tried to play a melody over what I was hearing. And I remember thinking how impossible it was at that point, but, but I was so intrigued at the same time. Um, so that was one of my, my, uh, my first musical memories. Um, yeah, well, I started off on trumpet when I was about four, and and said that was just me being intrigued. I think it wasn't my choice at that point. I have I even have some videos of me playing as a real young, probably like five or six, maybe playing the trumpet. Um, and it was kind of my dad's choice to switch to trombone. Uh, I think he felt like a couple of things. Firstly, I think he thought my ambition might be better for the trombone, and so maybe I was struggling with some things, amateur-wise. But also, I think he thought in the future for both Brad and myself to be on different instruments rather than fighting for the same gigs if we do end up to become uh, professional musicians. Um, so, you know, that was, that was well thought out, I thought. Was there a trombonist on record, Some someone that kind of had a, 
had an impact on you as well? Well, I've got to say dad first because, um, you know, that was up until probably I was like 12 was definitely the main influence. But then he would, he kind of just threw on me a bunch of CDs and tapes and, and records and 78s of um, people like Rossellino, Frank Rossellino, Carl Fontana, um, JJ Johnson, Bill Watrous, Herbie uh, Green. I mean, it's, 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 he just kind of picked some of the most amazing and musical trombone players and was just said, this is, it. this is how you play it. And, and I, I just loved, I just took to it immediately. I just loved, um, just loved the musicality of it. It wasn't even a technical thing, but of course, all those guys are technical, but they, they're dealing with the music. So I, you know, really appreciate that because that's kind of what formed me from an early age, I think, um, musically. But also, there were actually, there were people in, in England that helped. Like, I, I met Mark Nightingale when I was young, and um, he invited me around his house. And, you know, he was like, have you heard this? Have you heard that? And he was burning tapes of all different kind of trombone players that I hadn't checked out. I mean, that was that was something that I really appreciate, too. I try and bring that to, to students as well. And, and my brother my brother had a massive influence on me. Uh, and also, like, this was a, a good thing. is like, because he was playing the trumpet, he would be listening to people like Freddie Hubbard, Woody Shaw, Clifford Brown, Dizzy Gillespie. And, and so I would not only... I wasn't just listening to people on my instrument. I was listening to... Um, other instruments and just trying to hear the just the music and so that they had a big influence on me as well so i guess before i left for the u.s it was kind of trombone trumpet and vocalist heavy my listening was but then as i got to the u.s i started to and i guess my language maybe was developing and i started to get into saxophone players piano players guitar players of course coltrane Sonny Rollins, Steve Grossman, Michael Brecker, that kind of thing where they've had a great influence on me today. Let's talk about that move from Norwich to the States. It was a scholarship, I believe. I mean, how did you find that transition? Was it was it something that was scary to start off with? Yes, it was. But I I was the lucky one because Brad, my brother, he, he was a few years older than me. He got like almost a full scholarship to go to Berkeley uh, College of Music in Boston. He kind of went out there by himself. He went out there when he was 18, but still he was the one that was kind of leaving and and doing the stuff by himself. And then we went out as a family to visit him. And I ended up auditioning when I was maybe 15. And, um, and they gave me a full scholarship if I would like to come. So I was, I loved it. I mean, I, I wanted to follow my brother anyway. Um, so I really wanted to go. Of course, there was a condition from my parents of like, you've got to graduate if you're going to leave when you're 16 years of age. So I left after my GCSEs. And that's kind of kind of how it happened. So I don't think I would have, I definitely wouldn't have done it at that age if it wasn't for my brother that was older than me. So he was at least looking after me a little bit while I was out there for the first few years. 
um, you know, I kind of um, was viewing it as as a language. Like, if you you want to learn French, and you you know, you can. I'm learning it at school, but I know if I go to France, I'm going to definitely get to some of the subtleties. That maybe I wouldn't be getting you know in a classroom or something. But I mean, it's, that was kind of the mentality of like you know, go there, and and I definitely actually I. I felt that the first time when I was in school I got I think maybe a couple of years in school so I might have been 18 I got called to play with the Basie band when they were on the road in Boston I think one of their trombone players got sick so that was like a kind of taste of it of like I'd, I'd, I'd been checking out Basie for I don't know how long my dad took me to a Basie concert when in Cambridge when they came when I was eight or nine years old, maybe. So, I mean, it was, it was an, you know, I, I felt like I was prepared, <laughs> but then, um, you know, when I actually sat in the section, I, it was just a whole other way of just playing and approaching and just how much music was coming out. I mean, it, it was shocking actually at that age. It shocked me in a good way though. You know, it got me back into like, just re rechecking things out, re working on like, just trying to get as much music out as possible. They were swinging so hard. I was actually one tune. I was looking at the music saying, do I have the right music up? Because the rhythm that's on the page is not what they're playing whatsoever. I mean, it's so, I mean, that kind of thing I, I feel like was just golden for me to actually just experience. It. And you, you know, this, this kind of music, it's like you learn it on the bandstand. I mean, it's like, that's, that's the old school way of doing it. You, you, you can explain how to play in a certain time, but yeah, um, you can't, you know, if you just do it and you hear someone do it, then you'll understand it. So, um, yeah, that was definitely key. Does it feel pressured? I think as someone that's young, there is pressure. I mean, there's pressure. There, there is pressure for everyone. But I think, you know, there's pressure to establish yourself. But, you know, I, I, I can just see that how there's, there's not a lot of work for the kind of talented musicians that I'm hearing and I'm, I'm in contact with. So it, it, it's, it's, it's pressure to be able to get a gig and make a living. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just grateful. I'm kind of in the circles that I'm hearing how much talented and musical people uh, are coming out right now um young young cats i mean it's it's inspiring to me it's really inspiring but you know it's just i i know how the field is and if you want to make a living just playing jazz it's it's very very tough let's talk about um how you came to be a member of uh, jazz at lincoln center orchestra well, um, there w there was a connection from a couple of people that I played with in the band. So, I mean, outside projects. I think I've been in New York maybe eight years now, maybe ten years. I played with some of the some of the people in in the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, just outside, either in small band situation or other other bands. And then I think I got a call from from Vince first, Vincent Gardner. I was told there was an open position, open trombone position, which comes around on average, I think, like once every 12 years. So I was very surprised to get that call. And then also to be thought of as well. Um, I was told that, that, that Winton kind of asked Vince and Chris Crenshaw, who was who's still in the band at the time, but 
Um, he kind of asked the section who they wanted, and they um, fortunately unanimously chose myself. So that got me the audition. Um, and then I, I came in, I played one week, because we kind of do these themed weeks when we're in town. So I played one week. I didn't get to solo. I was playing in the section and just just absorbing how much musicianship there was going on in the band. So I was, I was, I was excited to be there. And uh, fortunately, I got called back for another week where I got to play just a few bars on something. And then um, I got asked to do uh, a month tour. So I did the month tour. And then somewhere in the middle of the tour, I was, I was asked to actually join the band, which is it's on a yearly basis, but I've, now I've been there. Um, we have yearly contracts, but I've been there now for coming up to eight years. You mentioned earlier you got to work with um, the Count Basie Orchestra. I mean, work, working obviously with Wynton Marcellus, uh, an, an artist with an incredible sort of family and legacy. I mean, what do you enjoy about working with him? Oh, I mean, there's there's many things. You know, first of all, he's, he's had an influence on myself. I mean, he's had an influence on Brad and my family as well. So, I mean, there's there's that side of things. I mean, like things like his uh, standard time. I mean, all the volumes, but especially volume one. There's working with someone that you really respect and you admire their playing and they've had an influence on you, there's that side of things. But also, you know, as I've got to know him um, better in the last few years, and I really feel like everyone in the band is, is family because we spend so much time together. I mean, I have extreme admiration um, just just for how, how successful he is as a jazz musician and like his... Um, education as well like we do so much education and how how important that is to to him and the band and just the kind of person he is as well where we might be on the road for we might have like 45 minutes between sound check and the gig or maybe even two shows that day and we've just arrived in that day and he'll be giving someone a lesson for free instead of eating and you know and then we'll i mean it's just it's and then he'll stay there until the last person wants a photo or an autograph, like after everyone's left. So, I mean, it's a different kind of guy. He's a special, special guy. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm happy to be around him. You're coming home. You're coming back to the UK. Um, what do you enjoy about that? What do you enjoy about playing in London? Anytime I get to perform in the UK, um, it means a great deal to me. I mean, my family's going to be there. Friends are going to be there. But even just the culture the, the people and we always get a great reception I love the Barbican Hall it's a great sounding hall to play in and uh, I actually feel like I'm home I still call England home even though I've been in the US for, for longer than um, than I was in the UK for so I mean for me it is coming home uh, and um, it's it's just it just means a lot it just really does mean a lot I mean, playing all styles of music, all eras of music, um, and that's that's what's key for me. I mean, I, I mean, we, some of the tours we've we've been out on, we've had fifteen hour long or even one hour thirty minute long themes in our pad of music. So we've we've had like a lot of music coming out with us. So I mean, we're 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 dealing with eras from yeah, we were obviously Duke Ellington, but we'd have themes of Chick Corea, Coltrane. Mary Lou Williams, through to all people, people's own compositions in the band, through to modern. Uh, I, I mean, I really feel like we're, we're 
we are representatives of um, all eras of jazz. That does that does uh, that does feel good. It does feel good. But I actually feel like I'm maybe more of a, a UK representative because I mean, like uh, Joe Temple from from Scotland is still in the band. Unfortunately, he won't be with us on this tour at Barbican, but he's in the band. And myself. Other than that, everyone else is from the US. Um, so I do feel like I am representing the UK. So, um, so the Wayne Shorter concert, we've we kind of got together as a band and picked some tunes, and then I think they went back and forth with Winton and Wayne of just like which ones he felt like doing, and some of them he said he'd only played on the record date, like Armageddon. So he only played that actually once and hadn't played it again. So I mean, it was, it was interesting, but we have tunes like ESP, Yes or No. Nellie Bly, Lost Hammerhead, Endangered Species, Contemplation. There's a wide range of um, of Wayne Shorter's work, and people in the band have basically been um, arranging it for for the band and Wayne. And that's that's another thing that the band is just individual about is that we go, obviously we get to play together so much, but also. The arranging, we're arranging for the individual, and I think that really comes out in the writing too. I mean, sometimes they'll be just like, "Oh, I'm hearing that person play that melody with so and so because of their sound," and it becomes very individual. And that's just why I think the band has got such its own sound. But anyway, so the Wayne Shorter thing, I'm super excited for. That's 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 a gig that right now I, I can't wait for because the the gigs that we did in uh, New York City with Wayne were just unbelievable. And he's such a, he's such a great guy. I mean, it, we all, like as I was saying, in rehearsal from like the first note, it was just about just making music. And I mean, it was, we just sat there. Everyone was kind of just looking at each other, just, and it was a lesson within itself. It really was. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. 
That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I would imagine the sound created is um, pretty ferocious. I mean, not beautiful, but but loud. Uh, you know, uh, because of all the players involved. I, I mean, I mean, even maybe sometimes you don't need a PA system. I mean, is it lovely to be at the heart of this this great thing? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you've got you've got people that have worked on their sounds all their lives, so they've created this amazing sound, whether it's loud or quiet. I mean, sometimes the the most moving thing with with the orchestra can be how quiet you're playing with this full beautiful sound it's its own experience it really is and actually as far as uh, PAs we, we never have any monitors I mean we we try and um, we try and base it as just as, ac- as acoustic as possible and then of course depending on the hall we're in we'll, we'll just amplify that but trying to keep it um, as natural as possible but for us on stage we don't actually have any monitors unless there's maybe a vocalist or someone that would need something um, joining us. Thanks to Elliot for speaking to me and sharing his story. Next, we grab our TARDIS and travel back to Benny Goodman's landmark concert from the 16th of January, 1938 at Carnegie Hall. We didn't quite know what would happen, how we would sound, what the audience would think of it. Until they got there, we didn't even know how many people would be on hand. So we just went out and played. This historic performance included work made famous by Benny Goodman, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, George Gershwin, Fats Waller and Louis Prima. Back at the Barbican itself on February 2018, clarinetist, saxophone player and musical director Victor Goins from Jazz at Lincoln Centre took on the ambitious task of transporting and recreating this moment in musical history. To learn more about its significance and Benny Goodman, I spoke to Victor Goins. Well, Benny Goodman was a great American clarinetist who realised how the arts could actually take him out of a position of poverty to um, a better life that ultimately became not just 
stardom, but also from a humanity point of view, a, a great opportunity to elevate himself and the people around him to be able to have a great life, not only in America, but around the world. And a lot of the tunes you're playing, they're in our psyche. They're in our, they're now folk melodies, I, I think. They are in many ways. And many people have heard them without knowing. I mean, as soon as you hit a drum beat, the same thing, thing, they might not know what it was, but, and they might not know the title of it, but they say, oh man, there's that jungle drum beat that's associated with Benny Goodman. Or um, if they hear the introduction to Let's Dance, or if they hear the beginning of One O'Clock Jump, or if they hear the riff section in it, they may not know the titles, they may not associate it with a specific person by name. They have been exposed to it somewhere in the background, if not in at home or in the car, but in a building or somewhere else that it just is a part of the music that is presented. He was described as the King of Swing. Why did he deserve that title? That's a good question. I don't really have a, a good answer. I can give you an opinion about it. When he came to the party to do what he did in terms of being a band leader and a swing musician, he, he approached it from a point of royalty, like it was the only thing that was important at that time. And especially in the time frame of when he was performing. And he treated his musicians with that kind of royalty and had the greatest expectations of them, like a king would have of their court. I would suspect that's why he received that title, because he was far excellent at what he did, and he became the king of that particular era. It, it probably came in, into place because he thought of himself and the people around him, so he was part of a, a royal court, just like there was the Duke, Ellington, and Count Basie became Benny Goodman, the king of swing. So um, I don't think it was literally, but, you know, he was in the, in the raw court of what was taking place at that time. At the age of 28 is when that great Carnegie Hall concert took place. Um, so his elevation to uh, virtuosic type of musical capabilities and public recognition was came very early for him because of his talents and the people around him recognized him as well. How did you become aware of him? Is it an obvious thing as a clarinetist to, to come across these recordings or other parts of his legacy? I think as a clarinetist, it's impossible to, to call yourself or be in touch with the clarinet in the jazz idiom without knowing about Benny Goodman. In fact, even in the classical idiom, because Aaron Copeland wrote that concerto for him and he had done something, he recorded the Mozart concerto as well. He was very, very well associated with the clarinet and the clarinet associated with him. It was interchangeable per se. I knew who he was at a very early age. Um, I didn't know his music on the level that I know it now. And as I perform more of it in recent times, I realized how much of it there is to learn that people take for granted. Of course, he did the great things in terms of the swing dance type of music that he performed. Don't be that way, let's dance. And um, he certainly considered his music a music for people to dance to. Um, beyond that, he was a virtuoso. When you look at things like dizzy spells, I got rhythm, things that were not intended for dance. He was extraordinary. He was, a, he was a great clarinetist. I think the more people play his music, the more they understand the greatness that was associated with him. It's easy to see what's on the surface. Many times people overlook that, and it's important that we dig deep into the tradition of Benny Goodman and, several, and, and all the rest of the great musicians throughout the history of jazz music.
listening to his recordings, he has what I would describe as a very sweet tone. How would you characterize his playing? Well, I, I think it is a very sweet thing in terms of his sound. And um, he managed to take the vocabulary of his early New Orleans counterparts and original Dixieland jazz band and his love for someone like Sidney Bechet and all those other, I think it was Ted Lewis was one of his great influences. And then he, he took that and developed a vocabulary that was unique to him because he's certainly not playing in a New Orleans type of arpeggiatic or arpeggiated type of style that clarinet players were known to play in that tradition. He has taken it through that into the swing era. And he didn't consider himself a bebop player. He never really went into that thing of playing the type of vocabulary that is, it was all always a melodic kind of thing inside the changes and whatnot. I, I, I would suspect if he really wanted to do that, he could, but it was not his desire to go that way. Being a player and being a band leader are two different disciplines, something that's not easy for everyone to pull off. I mean, would you agree with that? I agree with that <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Personally, I, I understand it too. Uh, it's it's a, a major thing to want to not only pull off, but to want to do after you've done it. Obviously, he achieved a great deal of success early and was able to generate the revenue that was necessary to run a band for many, many years. But it, it can be taxing on the average person, which kind of demonstrates how extraordinary he was to be able to finance that and, and have great expectations of the people who were around him because he was determined to play with the best people at all costs. And if you weren't going to continue yourself in the category of the best musicians, then he probably did not want to play with those people. I read he had a trademark glare, so if you did something wrong or weren't living up to his standards, he uh, perhaps made it known. Yes, it was called The Ray, R-A-Y, Ray. And it was a, a look at, at a musician when he found something that was undesirable in their playing that he didn't like. I've been told by sources that I know in, in recent times that The Ray was quite penetrating. And when he looked at you, it wasn't like he looked at a broad group of people, you can see that ray coming directly at you. <laughs> I presume we won't be having that in February. <laughs> no, we won't be giving off the ray. So could you set the scene? The original concert uh, was in 1938. It was performed at Carnegie Hall, what was known as a classical venue. Why was this a big deal? Well, because it was um, an opportunity for Benny to really address, one, he wanted to address the idea of his virtuosic abilities. Two, he wanted to deal with the whole thing of the racism in America. But the social thing in America of racism was really important to him. And, and as a result, he hit on that concert Teddy Wilson and Lionel Hampton, but also members of the, the Basie and Duke Ellington Orchestra played with them. Count Basie played, Harry Corney played. So, you know, uh, and then for Benny Goodman, it was, it was challenging too uh, in terms of um, when it was first presented, he didn't know really how people would take on the whole thing of sitting down to watch his music. Ultimately, when it sold out so quickly, he realized that they had something that was moving along. But he wanted to still make sure that the music was at the, the highest level so that the audience would be able to absorb it as he perceived it to be. That third thing, he wanted to deal with his ethnicity. 
you know, so you have things like uh, Bamiya Bishnushain in there, you know, his whole Jewish background. But those are three things that he addressed in that concert. Maybe following that up, he was very keen to make sure that musicians got to solo or have moments in the spotlight and those that perhaps didn't always have that opportunity. Yeah, it's been really amazing playing his music because many times Benny Gupp's arrangement had the other musicians solo more than he did. When I think of Swing Time in the Rockies, for instance, the trumpet solo is far longer than what the clarinet solo is. And even something like Sometimes I'm Happy, the clarinet just has a little smidgen here and there, but it's really featuring the trumpet. One o'clock, Jeff, when he played that arrangement, of course, his bass is tuned, but um, the other musicians had a role to be able to be exposed. So it's quite extraordinary how he put his musicians up front as well. Could you talk further about the, the repertoire in the sense of by performing this concert in, in full, you get a real sort of sense of the, the music that was popular at the time? We're doing probably 98% of the concert in this original format. It was just a little bit too long for us to consider doing the entire concert. But again, he addressed his love for the original Dixieland Jazz Band up in there when he uh, performed Sensation Rag. Uh, when he did Blue Skies, he recognized Duke Ellington. Uh, when he did One O'Clock Jump, he recognized Count Basie. He recognized the importance of, of the Duke Ellington song. Blue Reverie was the Duke Ellington piece that he actually played that featured Harry Corney and uh, Johnny Hodges and the small group to get the Ellington sound. He invited those musicians up. He, he did quite well in terms of keeping the spirit of the dance music in place, which is what they did on a regular basis, but also re- making people realize the virtuosic abilities that they had going on in the band with him and the people around him. And for you personally, performing on clarinet, tennis saxophone, and as a musical director, it must be an incredible experience, but but tiring? It's, it's, it's not as tiring as you might think. It's exciting because there's a lot going on in the music. And when you're inside of something, there's a great amount of joy of that too. I can understand, understand why some people want to be band leaders because when you can stand out front and hear what you do, or hear what you've written, articulated by great musicians, then there's a, a great um, gratification that takes place in hearing the band. I myself like playing in the band, <laughs> but I like hearing the people around me play the music so I can hear other things inside of the music that I couldn't necessarily, or maybe wouldn't necessarily hear if I was performing and focusing on my own part. 
You have the best seat in the house, maybe. I, I think I do, but I still think my own personal chair is the best seat. <laughs> I wanted to mention um, the record of the concert, which came out in 1950, um, sold over a million copies, which is staggering. Right. It was. It, I'm told that it, it was one of the best-selling live concerts ever. Also, we were really, really lucky in the sense that the concert wasn't intended to be recorded. They just happened to have on microphones in the house, un, unbeknown to Benny Goodman and his orchestra. When it was presented to him, he saved the tapes for some period of time and didn't even think about it. And he and a daughter were going through the house cleaning up things, and he found the tapes again. We were very, very blessed to have that concert recorded, first of all, and then the fact that Benny Goodman himself was able to locate the tape purely by accident once again, and then it was released on the recording. Could you tell me a little bit about the preparation that goes into a concert like this? I presume things like uh, sorting out the scores and... Well, it starts with a good, a good music prep team. And we have a great music prep team at Jazz at Lincoln Center. We have two young ladies. And well, we have a large staff, but there's two of them specifically who runs it. Kay Wolf and Christy English. So as we were preparing for this concert, they helped keep me on point of the need to be organized for this concert. <laughs> That's the first thing, because... As a member of the orchestra, we're doing a lot of different things. And as a professor at Northwestern University, that's another whole full-time job that I have. Our music prep people were very much on point in terms of asking questions. What do you want to do? Have you thought much about it? How do you want to approach it? Who would you like to be the guest artist on it? And many, many other things. So finally, once we got within, I think, a month of the concert, they encouraged me to come in and looked through all of the scores that we had of Benny Goodman's music to make sure it was the original arrangements. We had all of the original arrangements, basically, and those that we didn't have, we had transcribed. But ultimately, it, it allowed us to have all of the scores there. And then it just became a matter of presenting a concert in a way that would be appealing to our audiences today. Because the way the concert was presented, originally they had a lot of large ensemble work together, then a lot of the, what do you call, 20 Years of Jazz, which was like a, a smaller group taking place. And then he had his quartet and, and trio play later in the concert. So there was going to be several moments where the big band might be sitting around doing nothing. But I, I didn't want it to be like that. So I kind of rearranged it a little bit in a way that I thought would be most appealing to an audience listening to it. And as you get nearer, do you have his music on your iPod? Have you got the record in your in your record collection still? It's a must. <laughs> I definitely have it on my iPod because I'm constantly referencing it and uh, and seeing how I can be better at what he presented because the music deserves that kind of attention. No matter how well you play it on any given night, it can always be better. And and that's the goal of myself, the organization I work with and musicians who are serious about presenting Benny Goodman's music. It's not easy for an organisation like yours to, you know, your ensemble to exist and to keep this music alive. I mean, in, in this day when people want specific things and funding and other issues are sort of all creeping in, 
we should celebrate that. It definitely bit. needs to be celebrated and recognized on every level possible. Just running a, a small group of quartet, the finances of it is extraordinary. The sacrifices are amazing, just as a quartet player. So when you look at it as an organization that has a big band that celebrates the history of jazz music, it's a tremendous sacrifice financially. Artistically, just to speak a minute about what he could be doing anything he wants to do. But he chose to be artistic director of the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra. He chose to be in the trumpet section playing four trumpets. And he chose on any given night to play one or two solos. And those are major sacrifices for a musician who practice all of their life to be great at playing not only parts but soloing and, and also someone who's been as important to the history of jazz as he is. It should be recognized without a doubt. And I wish there were ways that it's easy to recognize, be recognized by people who know about it already. That's, that's not much recognition, to be honest with you. The goal is to try to see how we can continue to expand our, um, our audience base so that more people will know about it and potentially they will spread that good news to other people who are not informed about it. Of course, some things we don't like, and that's, that's the nature of the beat for some people. Most people don't have a chance to like something because they haven't taken the risk to taste it. And if people come out and, and savor the flavor of jazz and Benny Goodman in this case, then it will lead wanting more. Maybe now you have an idea of what our Carnegie Hall jazz concert was like. At least I think you should. I tried to give you an idea of the feeling we had, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks to Victor for speaking to me back in 2018. I'm Ben Eshmade. You're listening to an archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and themed series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out.